All right, so today we're going to tie in from last week. So if you missed last week, uh, I'm not sure that there's any CDs left out there, but you can always listen online. So it's kind of a part one, part two of today's lesson. All right, so through the series, we've been looking at miracles. The first several, we looked at miracles that Christ um, had, had performed on his earthly ministry. And we kind of gave a definition of the difference between hope and optimism. So inside your program is an outline. I want to encourage you guys to follow it all, along. The first two points are already filled in. The last point we'll look at today. But if you go to the top of your outline, I have a definition of what, uh, op, uh, what hope is. Hope is not optimism, all right? Or, uh, optimism is personal trust in you. Uh, it is what you believe you can do. Op, uh, optimism oftentimes just kind of looks away from reality. So life may not be going well. It may be horrible. And optimism teaches, well, if you just think good thoughts, good things will come your way. And unfortunately, we all know that that's not the case. There are times in our life when it isn't. It's just bad. It, across the board, it's bad. Well, hope, as we started out on Easter, hope is theological. Hope is a personal trust in God. Hope is what you believe or what you think God can do. Based on 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where it talks about our faith and our hope is in Christ, referring to the resurrection. That as Christ followers, we don't have optimistic hopes, think good things, good things will come our way. Our hope is theological. It's grounded in what Christ can do in and through us, and all things are possible with Christ. And so we said this through the series, that the miracles, whether they be in the, earth, uh, the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, whether it be in Old Testament times or even in today's life as well, miracles are to build our faith. So it isn't about just miracles. Miracles, there's a message in the miracle itself, and it's to build our faith that increases our hope in our life. There's byproducts in our life when we have hope in our life. There's, a, a, there's byproducts which we covered over the last several weeks and we looked at, okay? So as we just kind of keep that in mind, miracles are to build our faith, which increases our hope in our life. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're going to start reading in verse 10, but let me just kind of give you a little background, catch up from last week, and then we're going to run through today. Are you ready? Yes. All right. So half of you are ready, the other half of you are thinking about what you're barbecuing tomorrow, right? So I'm going to drive the neighborhood with my little address book of all the folks in the church. So if you're barbecuing and my whiffer's out the, no, out the window like that, I'm going to come unannounced. Are you ready? Yeah, and tri-tip, come on, no hot dogs and hamburgers, tri-tip, would you? Ribs, tri-tip, baby back ribs, Okay. Is anybody hungry? <laughs> I know, hurry up. Let's just take the offering. Oh Lord, thank you for today. <laughs> All right. So here, here it is. Little background. So Elijah is about 900 years before Christ. Uh, he was tapped by God to go and to confront King Ahab. Uh, King Ahab had an, introduced uh, kind of pagan worship into the area. And as a result of it, King Ahab was like the worst of the worst kings. He was married to Jezebel. We've all heard about Jezebel. And uh, she was kind of a corrupt. But if you could imagine if there's a worse king, he's it. And God tapped a, uh, uh, Elijah to go to him, to confront him about his, his uh, pagan worship. And as a result of it, the king was not too happy with Elijah. And he made him a marked man. And basically, he then, God takes Elijah and he takes him into hiding for a time. As we read the account of Elijah's life, 
that is a cycle of growing in faith, okay? So what we, what we looked at in Elijah's life is the same thing that God's going to do in your life as well because there's faith steps that we take to grow our faith in the Lord. One of the core values for us is growth, spiritual growth, right? And so God is going to take us through cycles like this or seasons like this in our life. And so as we look at this account, you could take the three points that we're going to look at and you could break them down and you can apply them to different seasons in your life to see how God is working to grow you. He wants to perform a miracle for what reason? To build your faith that increases your hope in your life, all right? And, and so God touches, uh, uh, taps on Elijah's shoulder, says, hey, go confront the king and confront him with the, with the pagan worship. He does. The king says, because of that, you know, you're a marked man, and God is going to call Elijah, and he's going to take him to the Kareth Ravine, which we looked at last week, okay? But let's just kind of go over it real quick. Number one in the outline that fills in the blank, so don't worry about it, the Kareth Ravine is a place of gloom. It's a place of loneliness. It's a place where you're in complete isolation. And so God tells him, I want you to go here and I'm going to have ravens feed you in the morning. I'm going to have ravens feed you at night. You're going to have a brook to drink out of. And so for roughly a year, Elijah is in there. He is in isolation. He's cut off from the world. He's cut off from his friends as a support group. And it's just him and God. Okay, And in, in the Hebrew, though that word uh, karith means... It means to be cut off or it means to be alone. And so he has this time where you're cut off, cut down, or alone, and God begins to work in his life. And you see in your outline, well, why is that? Because there's so much more that God needs to do in him because there's so much more that God wants to do through him. All right? And so this is the beginning of his ministry. So God takes him, he brings him into isolation. There's no noise, there's no friends, there's no support group. It's just him and God, and God begins to work in his life to refine him, which we'll see at the end, to refine him to be obedient, to develop his inner, uh, his inner uh, spiritual core values in his life. And so there are some reasons why, we looked in last week, three reasons why God allowed the brook to dry up. One of them was to, uh, to keep him from relying on the brook, and so later in that, right before he sends Elijah up to uh, Zarephath, he dries up the brook. Right? And again, as I said last week, there are times in our life where we feel like God dries up stuff and we wonder what we're doing wrong. But in this case, he was God's man and he was being obedient. But God dried up the brook because he didn't want him to rely on the food delivery service and he didn't want him to rely on the brook. He wanted him to rely on God as the provider. The second thing is this, to move him to a better place. And so oftentimes in our life, God will bring us into a place of isolation. He dries up the stuff because maybe he wants to move us emotionally, spiritually, and in this case, physically, he moves them to a different area in our life. So when our brook dries up and we're in total isolation, sometimes God is going to move us. He's going to move us to a different place. And then the third thing is to prove that he has not forgotten about him. We think when we're in isolation and our brook dries up, we wonder where God is at. But the reality is God did not forget about Elijah. He had, he had been paying attention to him the whole time. He didn't want Elijah to spend his whole life in the ravine. He wanted to ultimately send him to a different place. And then we looked at number two last week, and that was the journey north. 
And that was in the, the road of insecurity. So God calls him. He says, leave. I want you to leave that area. And I want you to leave the ravine. And I want you to go north. And I want you to go to west to Zarephath. And we learned that Zarephath was a place where uh, King Ahab's wife was from. So her family was probably there. He's a marked man. He's going to be killed because he basically said, hey, pagan worship isn't the way to go. God's not happy with it. You're not going to see rain for till God says so. And as a result, he becomes a marked man. And just kind of get this in your mind. So God takes him from a place of isolation and he tells him, I want you to leave here at once and I want you to go to Zarephath, which is going right through enemy territory a place where there's pagan worship, and of all the people that he's going to send him to, he's going to send him to a widow who, as we'll see in a moment, has nothing to offer him. And God sends him to that place uh, where he's going to begin to refine his, his inner core. So we looked at this last week. Things to remember in your outline. Number one, the path to a miracle is always through uncomfortable territory. Isn't that right? Because when do you need a miracle? When things are uncomfortable. When the doctor says something, when someone's in an ICU, when the marriage is exploding, when the kids are making poor choices, when the finances are drying up, when the boss said, sorry man, this is your last day, that's when you need a miracle. right? When you're on the beach in Hawaii, you don't need a miracle, you need to invite me with you. right? That's what you need to do. So, so it's at those times where it's uncomfortable where God ends up doing those miracles. In your outline there, the source of the miracle is always unexpected. As we see, we'll see in a moment, he's going to provide for Elijah through a widow. That doesn't make sense. What makes sense would be from a human standpoint is that you would send your man, God, to a place where they have this amazing amount of food because remember there's a famine in the land, there's a drought in the land, there's a recession in the land. It's, it's jacked up and messed up. And he sends him to uh, Elijah to a widow. He should have sent him to somebody who had plenty of food, had a little army to protect him. That's what we think he should have went because after all, he's God's man. You touched him. You told him what to say to King Ahab. You should be protecting him. Why are you sending him to some widow who doesn't have anything to offer him? In our mind, it doesn't make sense. Because... The moment that you think you can figure out God, you're in trouble, right? Because just as I kind of joked last week, I don't think it's true, but I do think it is. <laughs> Whenever you get these guys, ah, the Lord's coming on September 21st because of this, that, and the other, and the red moon, and the purple flowers, and the pink things, and the boats, and this, and the Magog, and ay, 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 ay. And yet the scripture says, no one knows. Okay, all right, we'll just get to that. But I think that, you know, when the moment that we say, this is the day, I, I think Christ is up there going, check, I was, but I'm not now. <laughs> right? Because who wants a guy in heaven going, excuse me, I predicted it. I'm the one. Paul, scoot aside, right? Peter, get moved, okay? I'm it, right? I don't want that stuff. All right, number three in your outline, and this is where we're going to take off from. The pattern for a miracle is always the CPR. Command, promise, risk. Command, promise, risk. You find that all through Scripture. There is a command that God gives. There is a promise that He will supply or He will lead or He will protect. And there is the risk that you've got to step out and be obedient. So God says to Elijah, 
I want you to go to the king and confront him. That's the command. The promise is, I will provide for you and protect you. The risk is, on Elijah's case, he's got to go confront the king. He's got to be obedient. And so he is going to confront the king. God's going to pull him into the Caritha Ravine at first and then eventually to Zarephath. And he is going to protect him and provide for him all the way. God's promises were true, but he needed to take that risk to do it. Now listen to me, okay? If you want your faith to grow and you want to experience God's miraculous power in and through your life, you will find this cycle over and over and over again. There will be a command, there will be a promise from God, and there will be a risk that you've got to step out and you've got to believe. If you do not step out and risk, you will not experience the power of God in and through your life. Okay? There has to be that step of obedience. The command and the promise are from God. That's His part. Your part is, am I going to believe Him, and am I going to step out, and am I going to walk in obedience to Him? Okay? So there's this CPR that takes place over and over and over. And we'll just get it down onto the table and call it what it is. I don't like it. Unfortunately, I'm not God. I don't get to write the rules. I just get to read them and apply them into my life. Because I would rather not have to go through that cycle. But if you want your faith to grow and you want the miraculous to happen, then there's the command, the promise, the risk that you must be willing to take in order for that to take place. You find it in Noah's case, you find it in Gideon, you find it in David, you find it all through Scripture. You find the same type of a situation that takes place. All right, so with that in mind, you ready? Number three in your outline is ultimately God calls him to Zarephath, okay? And that Zarephath in the Hebrew means refinery, and we'll get to that in a moment. And it is the refinery of scarcity, It is a refinery of scarcity. It is interesting because in our mind, again, God's economy is so much different than our our economy, the way that we think. And I don't necessarily just mean financial economy, but just the way the human mind thinks. God's is almost 180 degrees different than what ours is. Okay, It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, humanly speaking, for God to tap a guy in the shoulder to go and say, confront the world, confront the king, then I'm going to take you into total isolation and you're going to feel like you're completely abandoned. And then I'm going to say, leave here at once and I want you to go right through the worst part of the country that you could go to, a place where everyone worships the God that you said don't worship, you are a marked man, and I want you to go right right through that and then I want you to find a widow. No, well, God, I want to find someone rich. I don't want to find a widow. I want to find someone who has a special force army group, a bunch of food, because I've been eating what the ravens have been dropping off at my house for the last year, and I want to eat like a king. I want to dine like a king. I want to sit back in the swimming pool, soak my feet, and have a great time. And God goes, well, that's not the way I work. 
because I want to do something in you because ultimately I'm going to do something through you that's much larger than yourself. And in order for me to do that, I've got to develop your character for you to be the person of God that I would want you to be. And so he's going to send him to a place where he literally has nothing. So verse 10 is where we're going to pick up. So you ready? Verse 10. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. Now remember in verse 8, he had already told him that. That I commanded a widow to take care of you. So it's interesting, on this miracle, God is working both ends of the miracle. He's working in the heart of Elijah, and he's working in the heart of the widow, and the widow doesn't even know who Elijah is, and Elijah doesn't even know who the widow is. And so he's working both ends of the miracle at the same time. And so he says, I'm going I'm to send you up there, and there will be, at the town gate, there will be a, a widow there gathering sticks, right? So he goes on, he says, and so Elijah calls her, and he asks her, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? Well, that's, that's reasonable. He just walked over 100 miles. He ought to. Verse 11. As she was going to get it, he called and bring me, please. So whenever you say please, it's automatic yes, right? That's what my wife says. If you don't ask with please, you don't get it. All right? So when our kids were small and when I, me today, she'll look at me and go, you didn't say please. I'm not getting it. Please, get it now. And then, please, a piece of bread. Okay, now, imagine this in your life. Imagine God tapping you in the heart, in the shoulders, and saying, I want you to find the poorest person in our community. And I want you to go to them, and I want you to say to them, excuse me, will you take me to Red Lobster? please, right? There's no social network. There, there's, no, there's no welfare. There's no governmental assistance in this time. If you didn't have a large family taking care of you, if, ladies, if you lost your husband, and you didn't have a large family taking care of you, you were basically a beggar. You, you, you survived off the kindness of other people who would pass by. So, so this is, not only is there a recession, not only is there a drought, not only is there a famine in the land, but we're, we're going to a lady that even in good times would have been barely living. And God sends his man to her and he asks her for something to eat. So it's kind of comical when you read through and you understand kind of the background of what's taking place. Verse 12. As surely as the Lord... What? What's the word? Your God. She's not even a believer. She's not even a Jew. She's a pagan worshiper. So he sends her there and she says, As surely as your God lives, she replied, I do not have any bread, only a handful of flour in the jar and a little bit of oil in the jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and for my son that we may eat it and... That's her outlook. So imagine, she has a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. In her view, she's got one more helping. She's going to feed her and her son. They're going to have the last meal, and then they're going to die. They're going to die of starvation. God, you're sending me where? 
You're sending me to a lady that has nothing? To, to, to a place of scarcity? To a place where she literally has nothing and her view is we're going to have a little bit of cake and we're checking out of here. And you want me to go and ask her for what she has. God, how about I got a different idea? Why don't you send me to the food bank, to the king, that I can walk into his room that's loaded with food? Why don't you send me there? Because that makes more sense. Doesn't it? But that isn't God's economy. Because God wants to do something in him because ultimately he wants to do something through him. And this is a test of his faith. For him to grow in it. And God will take us through seasons in our life. Where we'll look at the experiences and we'll say, God, I don't know if I'm going to believe you or I'm going to believe myself. And God will take us into those environments. And he'll say to you and to me, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe what makes sense, humanly speaking? Or are you going to believe the promise and the commands that I've given you? And those are the times where God refines our spiritual life. Because again, sitting in Hawaii with our feet on the sand, with the water washing up on our feet, that's wonderful. But typically we're not growing in our faith in those moments. And so God takes him to this place where it's going to be a refinery to refine his spirit. This is the beginning of his ministry. God's going to do some amazing things through him. But in order for him to do that, he's got to do something in him first. Verse 13. And this becomes kind of funny to me. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Now let me just take a sidestep. I think oftentimes good-hearted Christians and Christ followers, we mean well when we say it, but I'm big on don't use flowery words. You know, we, we want to do it because we're trying to be nice and we're trying to be compassionate. But, but when someone's going through a hard time in their life, don't, don't just airmail words that you think, be honest with them, right? So when something bad happens, you say, you know, I understand. It's like, no, you don't understand. You have no idea. Even if you've gone through something similar, you still don't know. So Elijah says to her, hey, don't be afraid. Take the little bit of food that you have. Give it to me. Don't be afraid. Well, isn't that nice? Right? It's like surgery, right? Minor surgery is when it happens to you. Major surgery was when it happens to me. Right? So when you have surgery, I'm like, don't worry. And I'm the one that's like, don't come with me to the needle. You know, wah, wah, wah. I don't want no needle around me. Right? So he says to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. You're going to go make some bread. Go do it. But first, <laughs> make me, <laughs> make a small cake for me from what you have. Well, that's nice. And bring it to me. And then go make some for yourself and for your son. When you read that, that doesn't even sound godly, does it? Because godly would be, no, 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 I don't want to take your last. You go home and eat it and die. Right? I mean, that's godly. This is, no, no, don't eat it, give it to me. It almost doesn't even sound like it's right. It sounds like a mistake to me. Verse 14. 
For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, and here's the promise. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run out until the day the Lord gives rain in the land. So here she is. Now she has the CPR, doesn't she? Elijah has the CPR, command, promise, risk. Now she has to. She's not even a follower. Here's the command, bring me the bread. Here's the promise, your jar will never run out. I'm thinking, hey God, why don't you fill my jar up first? Then we'll talk about bringing you some bread. Right? Is it true? And now she has to either believe it or turn away from it. Now she has to risk what little bit she has and trust him or walk away. Command, promise, risk. God's commandment, go to King Ahab. Or command, rather. God's promise is, I'll provide for you. The risk is, he has to do it. Now she joins in to it, and I'm not even sure at this point she's even familiar with what's going to take place. Verse 15. She went away, and she did as Elijah told her. So she did the, followed the command. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. Verse 16. For the jar of flour uh, was not uh, used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. She experienced the command, the promise, and the risk. Now, I said the word in Hebrew for Zarephath means refinery. Now, now get the picture here, okay? Because this is a seasons that God takes us through. The first one was in the Kretha Ravine. Gloomy, isolation, all by yourself. You don't have the support, you don't have the network, you don't have the noise of the world. You feel like God has just grabbed you from the shirt collar, taken you to a place where all you have is Him. And God takes Him there for one year to develop Him. And in times like that, it's like, it, it, you know, it, in, I don't like going through it, but when I'm through it, I, I kind of rejoice in it. Because I recognize that when I come to a point in my life where all I have is God, then I recognize that He is all that I need. But as long as I have a lot of other things out here, the noise, the support, the world stuff, oftentimes I don't recognize that He is not only all that I have, that He is all that I need because I have a lot of other stuff. And so God takes Him to this place where He just develops Him. He has nothing else. Birds in the morning, birds at night, a river running through is where he's living. Then he sends them to Zarephath. Now that's a refinery. This is a different type of experience. This is a time where there's a scarcity. This is a time in your life where the resources that you have dry up. It may be financial resources. It may be relational resources. It may be health issues. It may be, you know, work. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there and you're wondering, where am I going to get whatever it is that we're going through? Okay? And so in those moments, that's the refinery. It's the refinery of wondering, how am I going to provide? How am I going to get? How am I going to, to live my life? All right? So again, in your mind, 
There's the isolation. God's growing him. Now, now he's in a place where he's around other people, but he dries up all the resources that there is because he wants to teach him that he is the provider of all things. Okay? So, so there's some lessons in learning as we go through this. Number one in your outline. <clears throat> what to remember. Whatever I need more of, I need to give to God. Okay? Whatever I need more of, I need to give to God. There's the, the myth out there that, that, that if I have it, I've got to hold on to it and in order for me to keep it. It's not true. That's, that's the world's economy. God's economy is 180 degrees different. If I want more of it, if I want more time in my life, then I need to give what time I have, I need to give to the Lord. If it's resources, if it's treasures, if it's creativity, if it's your ability, whatever it is that you want more of, you need to give. In her case, she needed more oil and more flour. She had to give it to the Lord, right? And so this isn't, this isn't about necessarily a financial message, but it's just recognizing that we need to make sure that if we want more of something, we got to give it away. In Luke chapter 21, where you have the widow's might, remember Christ taught, speaks of her, and he says she'll be remembered and glorified forever. And the reason why is because what little she had, she gave it all to him. Right? So she gave everything that she had to, to, to him, and Jesus said she'll be remembered forever because she was willing to give what little she had completely and solely to him. Number two in your outline is whatever I have the least of, and again, this is so contrary to the world, whatever I have the least of, I got to give to God. All right? The world teaches that we give out of our abundance. So for instance, if your kids are raised and you, know, you have free time, someone will say, oh, you know, you ought to go down and be a person that works at the hospital and help people around. That's wonderful. That's a great ministry to have. I'm not downplaying it. I'm not saying it's not a good thing. But that's what the world says. Oh, you got a little extra money at the end of the month? Oh, this charity is a great ministry or a great opportunity to help people who, you know, whatever it is. And, and that may be completely true. But our culture teaches that we give out of our abundance. God teaches that we give out of the least that we have. Because that is where the sacrifice really is. Would you agree with that? So she had to make that call. Am I going to give the little bit that I do have? Am I going to give it to the Lord? Am I going to believe the promises that the jar is never going to run dry? Or is she going to do what most people would do, which is this is all that I have, I better hold on to it. And so that's exactly what we do. What's interesting when you think about this, you think about someone who's a, you know, a multimillionaire worth 500 million bucks. You'll hear about them and they'll say, oh, they gave a million dollars to such and such a cause, which is wonderful. I mean, that's great. Hey, God bless you if you got a ton of money. Good for you. But maybe the bigger sacrifice for them wouldn't be the money. Maybe it would be their time because maybe they don't have a lot of that. See, the money may not be an issue. You're worth 500 million bucks, a million bucks, like 20 bucks to you and I. At the end of the service, you're all going to give me 20 bucks so I can go to Hawaii and put my feet in the sand. Did, you didn't get the memo? I was wondering why attendance was down today. So anyhow, um, so, so, 
maybe the thing to do is when you have the, the least, that's what you need to commit to the Lord, right? Because that's really the stretching of your faith. Am I going to believe him? Is, is he going to provide for us in those difficult times where we have the least in our life? And then the last one is this. I don't give to be blessed. I give to be a blessing. Again, the world says you give to get. And there is a sowing and reaping. There's no doubt about that. And God honors a cheerful giver. But we don't give to get. We give in order to be a blessing to someone else. Right? And so as she gives what little she has, she gives it as a blessing to someone else. God is going to take you through these seasons. He's going to place you in a place of scarcity. He's going to put you in a place where there's a refinery, where there's fire and pressure. And you're going to have to, are you, are, are you going to rely on Him and trust Him? And will you be willing to take the risk that He calls you to step out and believe and trust? Four things to take home and then we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. First one is, is that God is all that you need. And the reality is, is until you come to a point in your life or a place in your life where He is all that you have, you will not recognize that He's all that you need. And if you ever get to a place in your life where He is all that you have, you will experience His grace, His peace, and His mercy in your life that just washes over you when you're in that place that's just a tough place, a tough season to be in. Number two, is God will provide where He guides you, wherever He's leading you, whatever He's placing upon your heart, God will provide for you. Number three, God wants me to trust Him, and I should have put in here every moment of every day. Every moment of every day. So here's how the faith walk looks like. You ready? I trust Him. I trust Him. I trust Him. I trust Him. And that's how it is in your life. And if you're not in those places where He's calling you and He's stretching you to trust Him, I would just say to you, you may not be listening to Him because He doesn't allow us to walk in comfort for too long because He wants to transform us into the image of Christ. Number four. The fourth thing is is that God's promises are always connected to obedience. It's the CPR. There's a command, a promise, and there's a risk that for you to, to be obedient. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will meet... What's the word? Aww. Guess what that word all means in the Greek? Aww. Scholars. <laughs> I'm impressed. Right? Relationally, financially, every need that you have in your life. But look at the verse. It's even cooler than that. It will meet all your needs according to your good looks, wealth, and how smart you are. No? Different translation? All right. All His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Right? The provisions for us isn't our ability, our looks, our smarts, or our bank account. It's His. And He wants us command, promise, and risk in your life. And if you're willing to grow spiritually... God will take you into these seasons time and time again. And here's the cool thing. It's not fun to go through them. And I'll be the first to admit it. I hate it. But when I get through it, I'm so grateful 
Not that I'm through it, but I'm so humbled that God in his, 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 his grace and mercy and love paid me a visit to get me through it, to experience his peace, and to speak into my heart. It's humbling to think that the God of creation would speak to a sinful person, a screwed up person, that he will take you in that moment and minister to your heart. It is so humbling to experience. And if you haven't, man, I pray in the name of Jesus, not that I want bad things to come your way, but I pray in the name of Jesus that God would take you through that, that you would experience it. Because when someone comes to you and says, God doesn't exist, (laughs) I would love to sit down with them and just tell them, seasons and times where God again and again and again in his grace and mercy have come into my life to speak to me that's so real and so powerful. And he'll take us through those seasons over and over and over again because God wants to do something in you to do something through you. And he wants to do the miraculous to grow your faith, to increase your hope. And as Dale shared, so that we would be the hope bearers into a hurting world. Amen.